Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. My guest today, Kate Klonick, is a professor of law at St. John's University. Um, she's also a leading expert on social media and Facebook in particular. Uh, this is like the kind of subject that I think is challenging for people because like we all use Facebook, so we all have opinions on it. And it can get really dangerous because you have opinions on things without really knowing anything about them. Um, and Kate is the opposite of that. She has done the most intensive study of Facebook's sort of new, um, this kind of Supreme Court that they are rolling out that's going to make decisions about content moderation, other important things on the platform. She really understands it inside and out in like a clear, um, really thoughtful way. Uh, so our conversation, I've learned a lot from her over the years. I learned a lot from this conversation. I think you will too. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Kate Klonick, is, a, is an old friend of mine as well as an assistant professor of law at St. John's University. And she has recently published uh, in The New Yorker, which I, I think, you know, one of the most important pieces of, of journalism that we're going to see this year. And it's a really in-depth look at this kind of tribunal that Facebook has established with some some fanfare to rule over some of its content moderation policies. And this is a subject, I don't know, public interest in like Facebook's internal decision making waxes and wanes, but we know it's going to be with us for a long time. And I'm really excited to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. You know, one thing uh, about this story, the discussion around it is that I, I saw a fair amount of buzz about like, who is this Kate Klonick? And like, how did you get what makes the story fascinating is you have really like unprecedented access to the people involved in putting this together. And so like, how how did that come together? Like, did did Mark Zuckerberg just like, stuff lots of money in your pockets and doing his <laughs> propaganda you can confess now um no i actually have a good running joke that i'm going to be poor and write about facebook for the rest of my life <laughs> like I, i've been doing this for five years now in writing i mean it's sexy um in the academic sense i wrote about it in the harvard law review in 2018 and then i actually wrote this story for the new yorker in a 82 page version in the yale law journal that is for your audience is truly in the weeds they can go there and uh, and look at that. No, law about- review articles are too long for <laughs> us. It's, that's, that's where I draw the line. Um, but really, this is a story of, you know, being an academic and deciding to kind of apply, I think, a natural way that I go about solving problems um, and 
uh, which is to kind of do, uh, to ask people questions and to start asking people questions and to try to figure out systems and understand systems and processes by the people who are operating them and making them happen. And so I started that in 2015 when I was doing uh, my first piece, The New Governors, the one that was in the Harvard Law Review. And that was no one at fa- inside, well, there was one person, Monica Bickert at Facebook did like a very official interview with me, but there was nobody else that I talked to. Everyone had left the company. It was all people that were outside because no one at Twitter or YouTube or Facebook would speak with me on the record. And I was a PhD student at the time. Like I was just a, who is this Joe? And so the piece ended up having, the new governor's piece ended up having a pretty profound effect. It was able to kind of paint for everyone from journalists to academics, a a very balanced sense of just exactly how the process inside these companies was working and to analogize it to a system of governance or like a legal system so that people could kind of understand that when it came to content moderation anyway, that this was specifically how the companies were working um, to take it down. And so it got me a fair amount of cred. And the piece ends with me basically saying there needs to be more due process, there needs to be an appeal system. And I'm not the first person who called for this. A lot of people had called for that. But when Zuckerberg announced in the fall of 2018 that he was going to create this oversight board, I was very interested. And I had, at that point, I had finally like kind of made some connections at Facebook and they would contact me and ask me questions about things. I wasn't consulting or getting paid for them or anything, but I had contacts there. And I said, hey, if I wanted to write this piece, if I wanted to just tell this story all the way through, you're saying that what you are doing this for is transparency and accountability. Well, what is more transparent and accountable than letting someone inside while it happens and the sausage gets made? And they're like, oh yeah, that's a pretty good point. And I was like, and I was like, if I do this, there's no way it's too big a project. I can't have an NDA. I can't be going back and forth and asking for permission on things and whatever else. And I have to be able to tape things because I just need to protect myself against these claims that like, and I wrote three grants and I got three grants to independently fund my entire project. And Facebook came back and said, okay, to the no NDA, just for this project and this team. You know, that started in June of... 2019. And, you know, for the next 18 months on and off, I spent hundreds and hundreds of hours going back and forth to Palo Alto until I you know we didn't meet in person anymore. And then finishing the story up in so many Zoom and Blue Jean and Google Hangout meetings. And, and you know, so this is a, a kind of, I, I don't want to say unique, but unusual project in that, you know, you're, you're a professor, you're an academic, you're able to work on this on a bit more of an academic timeline like you you took a long time with it uh but you you were a journalist yourself that's that's how i know you and you and you know that skill set um and are able to you know come up with a a piece of scholarship but that depends on talking to people in in real time in a, in a sort of unique way so something that's in your piece that i thought was just a great moment that for the first time made this whole idea of a Facebook oversight board uh, gel to me is you're talking about it's Noah Feldman, I think, is talking to Mark Zuckerberg. And he Zuckerberg says when he comes to embrace this idea that it's like he personally is spending a ton of time on these questions about has this content moderation decision been made the right way, but it's not that important to the 
like it's important to people, right? Like there's a lot of discussion about it, but it's not actually like what Mark Zuckerberg wants to spend his time doing, but it's too high profile to just kind of like kick it down to some middle manager somewhere. Yeah, no, I think that that's exactly right. That wasn't always the way that it was, by the way. Like when I had first started doing this, you know, and I started interviewing how Facebook created its policies, the story starts in 2008 with like a group of people that I kind of, I jokingly termed in my own mind, like the redheaded stepchildren in the basement at Facebook, where they were like in charge of making all of these content policies and enforcing them. And people were not fully understanding how much content moderation was going to become a ride or die type of issue um, and like a part of the product. And I think the mark was shielded from that largely until the Napalm Girl incident, which was the terror of war photo that was taken down. A famous Norwegian uh, author published this terror of war photo, um, a famous uh, award-winning photo of a naked girl running from a bombed out Napalm village in in, um, Vietnam. And it was removed by Facebook and he threw a fit and the prime minister of Norway reposted the photo and she was, it was taken down for her. And Sheryl Sandberg got involved and said, listen, we're sorry, we got this wrong. And that was in 2017. And that was the moment, and everyone will tell you this inside Facebook, that that was the sea change. Like that was the moment that it was like, this wasn't going to end at Cheryl. Like Nat, like Mark was going to be in the room for those conversations. And like, we all know that that's happened many, many times since then. And so, yes, I think that there's this fascinating part of this story, and I'm so glad you picked up on it because there was a lot of stuff in that story. But yeah, there's like this tension between wanting to create a product and focus on just creating new products. And there's a tension between governing and like basically the community that those products creates. And I just don't think that like they, they, they're two totally distinct set of skills to do them each well. And so this is where the idea comes from, because until until I sort of got that anecdote, I was like, well, what does it mean to say Facebook is going to create an independent panel? Like, it can't be independent. But here it's like, OK, it does make sense. It's like Zuckerberg wants to put together a group of people who have enough stature that it sounds reasonable that, like, the prime minister of Norway can complain to them. Right. Like it can't be like some nobody who's on the Facebook campus someplace, but like it shouldn't be him. Like he doesn't want to deal with it, but he also doesn't want to punt it down to like someone who's not important. So the idea is to create a group of people who have enough standing that it would like make some kind of sense to trot them out to the public and be like, this is who has made the decision. And so like, who who is it? Yeah. So, um, no, you're completely correct. I mean, that's like, there's, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it, right? The economic question is like, yes, I think absolutely this decision is actually a good one for the company's bottom line. It makes the problem of content moderation to a large extent, or it will, somebody else's problem, right? It makes it like the Facebook oversight board's problem, not Mark Zuckerberg and not Facebook's problem. They have to make these decisions Facebook just follows whatever they say, right? On the other hand, you do have kind of this idea that just because that is true does not mean that this is a bad idea in general. Because really, this accidental community of people and policymakers within Facebook, and I say accidental because it's just like, they're really talented people, but they're not trained necessarily to just be thinking about kind of free expression issues, is not maybe the ones that we want creating such heady policy for the world right now. And so 
you have an expert body. And I will say that like, there's a saying of like, an institution is 20% documents and 80% the people. And that is like a fascinating part of this, which is like, I followed watching these documents get written and the, the ideas of what the board would be for over a year. And it really wasn't until May of 2020 when the board was announced that I had a real sense of whether it was going to be just a pile of rubble and like that no one would take seriously or a rubber stamp or like something or a Potemkin village or whether it was going to be something really serious. And they got a bunch of really serious people that were really smart on these issues to stake their reputations also on the future of the board. And that was a huge deal. So who who did they get? So they have Hella Thorning-Schmidt, who is the former prime minister of Denmark. They have Jamal Green, who is a Columbia law professor and an expert in um, free speech in the First Amendment. And uh, actually, interestingly, also the brother of Tlaib Kweli. And Michael McConnell, who is a uh, First Amendment scholar and former Tenth Circuit judge, who is at Stanford Law School. And they have uh, Catalina Marina Botero, who is a former uh, free speech rapporteur and a law professor in Latin America. And so that those are the four co-chairs that they selected. That's like a pretty insanely impressive list of people. And then from there, we have a Nobel Peace Prize laureate. We have digital rights advocates. There's um, The rollout was actually quite positive uh, with some exception, but people really grafted onto the expertise of these people. And, and it's global, which is important. Not as global as it could be right now. But I mean, it's an important dimension. Again, I I thought from from the piece, something that drove home to me, the like significance of internationalism was the, the, the anecdote about like a sign or a joke meme that says kill all men. Yeah. Which I thought was a good example, right? Because it's like, I, I understand as an American why that is a joke. And like what that means and how that is different from kill all Rohingya, right? That like one is a threat of genocide and the other is like something people say that they don't mean. But that's like incredibly context dependent. Yeah, there's no such thing as any type of global speech norms. It's not a thing that exists. There's no global community. Like a community is defined by like the norms that it has and how it enforces them. And you don't have that in a global community just because like we're just really not that global yet. We're not even close to having that. Everyone is regionalized. One of the best things that I did when I was working on this piece was to take it on the road and go overseas. And I could not believe the amount of priors. I had been working so hard against them, but my priors that were so US-based. And the you say it's a global board. It is truly a global board, but it actually, for the amount of people that use Facebook, which is 5% of Facebook users are from the US, it has five board members that are US-based. Like, yes, it's a, a US company, but the oversight board isn't supposed to be representing or kind of speaking to the company. It's supposed to be speaking to the users. And so that should be deeply global. And I think that there needs to be more representation from religious minorities and from and from the global south going forward. And I think that there needs to be more technical sophistication um, of the people that are on on the board to understand kind of the specifics of what they can really start to push on technically for for Facebook to do. Uh, let's take a quick break, and, and then I want to come back to this question of, of globalism. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, you know, obviously the kind of tension running through this project, you know, you were saying there's different ways to look at it. There's a super cynical way to look at it. Uh, but I think you you want to look at it a little bit cynical because for it to work, it has to make sense for Facebook, right? Like as, as, as a business. And that's not a bad thing to say that businesses want to succeed, right? But one reason it seems to me to skew the board toward the U.S., is that the people who work for Facebook are disproportionately Americans. It's not just located in the U.S., but like the people who make Facebook are primarily Americans, and their friends are Americans. And a lot of the interplay, I feel like at least a lot of the issues around content moderation in a business sense have to do with with staff morale, right? That like Facebook wants to say to like top young college graduates that going to work at Facebook is a good thing to do with your life, that technology is exciting, that connecting the universe is is good, that this is like better than go being some Wall Street drone who's, you know, sucking the lifeblood out of, of vibrant companies. And so that then means that American ideas about speech matter a little bit more to Facebook than Indian ideas or Brazilian ideas, even for a global company. No, that's totally true. And it's not just about speech. It's about the type of speech. You know, there is never going to be the same type of treatment of nudity in Sweden as there is in Pakistan. 
um, or at least not for a very, very long time. Uh-huh. And so like, you know, that is just like one example, but like, is the U S closer to Sweden or is it closer to Pakistan? Well, part of the story that I think is always missing from this is that Pakistan might tell Facebook, listen, you have to take down all pictures of women not wearing uh, like a, like a burqa. And Facebook says, no, but Sweden says you have to keep up all pictures of women breastfeeding and Facebook says no. And what I think is interesting here is that instead they, they try to create this like this balancing test uh, or try to create some type of like, they create these incredibly iterative rules that are so hard to, to see. And you say it's fun. It's really funny, but you say that, uh, most of the people who work for Facebook are American, and maybe those are the people making the policies, but the people that are then enforcing those policies are mostly contract workers working in Hyderabad or the Philippines mm-hmm. or or maybe Ireland or like maybe Warsaw, but there are people working all over the world that are not at all understanding the needle that Facebook's trying to thread with their nudity policy between Sweden and Pakistan. All they're seeing is this rule and they have to be able to kind of suppress their instincts, their own personal instincts on a piece of content and apply Facebook's rule. It's just kind of mind boggling. What what, what I'm saying is not that the, not that the content moderators are Americans because they're contractors, right? But that part of the constituency that the Facebook executives care about is I, I don't know exactly what it is they do at at Facebook headquarters in Silicon Valley, <laughs> but like they're doing something, right? Like they are building the product, and as like Zuckerberg says, like that's what he wants to focus on. He wants to spend his time and his people making the best possible product, but that means he wants them to feel good about. Like I would feel like shit if I worked at Facebook. I would wake up every day and hate myself because I would say this is a company that is basically the equivalent of like a cigarette company, right? It is marketing a highly addictive, very successful product that is bad for people. And like what Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and them are trying to do is make people say, no, it's it's not like that. This is like working at a um, solar panel company. Right. Like you are advancing the frontier of human possibilities and doing amazing things. And part of the point of this board, right, is to whether it's in reality or just in appearance is like nudge it to be more like the solar panel company and less like the the tobacco company. So people think like Facebook, like that this facilitation of communication is good. Right. And then it it matters what the Pakistani government says, and it matters what the Swedish government says, and it matters what users in Peru say. But like what matters also is just like, do the people who work there feel like they are holding their heads high? And like this this is a good product that we feel good about getting people to use. This is it's so funny that you mentioned that. Um, so a little bit after the piece came out in the New Yorker, I got this very sweet, very long note from a Facebook employee's mother uh, that was just <laughs> living in like a rural northeast state and said that like her child works for Facebook and everyone in the town is very hard on her that her child works for Facebook and shames <laughs> her all the time about it and that she really appreciated. She was like, this is such a nuanced take. Thank you for writing this. I can like explain to my friends, like really like what it is that like people are doing at this company. And it's not all like kind of, I just kind of think that that's such an interesting 
that's such an interesting kind of moment mm-hmm. that like someone is that that's exactly what you're saying. But you know who doesn't really have any shame about working for Facebook at all? People who are getting visas to come into the country and like work at Facebook. And I actually think this is amazing and brilliant. I think this is great that Facebook is giving. But I also think that there's something very interesting about that, which is that you're not going to get the same level of employee kind of pushes for unionization the same type of pushes for like for any type of like thrash or walkout when you have people whose entire family and like their living situation, everything and their being in the United States is based on their employment with Facebook. I think that that's an interesting kind of power dynamic that we're going to see to see more of. It's- yeah, we got to do a whole different show on on visas. Oh, sorry. And, and yes, employment that's like a whole visas. different show. Give us some other some other examples, right? Because so like different attitudes toward toward nudity and, and you know, images of women's bodies. I think I think people know that like that that norm varies a bit around the world. But like what what else is it that you found? I mean, both workshopping the piece and, and talking to people there as they tried to road test the rules. Like what what should parochial Americans understand about the world? Well, like, I mean, just kind of in some really procedural ways, like, I mean, about how the board was going to be structured at all. There were some really like very like significant conversations around, like, for example, whether the panels should be anonymous people. Some people really thought that like what we have right now is a lack of transparency. And some people thought that if you were going to have people really able to voice their opinions within the panels as board members, that they needed to have some type of protection anonymity, both for safety reasons and just to be able to kind of have the strength to disagree and not get dragged for it publicly. And so that was kind of a very fascinating conversation to be having back and forth with people. But on like particular subject matter, there was one example that we did, which was a Facebook page that had 250,000 followers. And it was uh, a person who was like a white supremacist in an American country in the Americas. And I could not tell in looking at this page, whether this was satire, or whether it was because it was actually so over the top and kind of crazy that I couldn't, I couldn't determine whether it was satire, or whether it was real. And there was so much I did not know about this country. And I had never heard of the person before. Well, like everyone from like that was like in the room at that time had like all heard of of her and like knew everything about her. And so there was kind of this, well, don't you know, this is so easy. Obviously, you take this down. And so that there would be like, three people from the country, right? That were like, obviously you take down this person. We can tell you that this person is a white supremacist. So like you should take it down. But like there was just all of these moments of just like, but I can't tell that from looking at this image. Like I can't tell, like this could be, it kind of was like in a mocking in a way, like they had a music video that was a white supremacy, like music video. And it was so crazy and over the top. It could have been like a Sarah Cooper skit. It was so nuts. And I just remember being like, how do you, have any sense of like what of what is satire? I mean, satire has got to be one of the hardest things. Satire and commentary, posting something that is Nazi speech as an example of like trying to draw a comparison to current people in the American government. Obviously, if you're from America, you know you're probably 99 out of 100 times not actually like lauding Nazi speech, and that it's drawing some type of comparison to fascism, but. Uh, that is not the norm in a lot of places. Nazi speech is treated very differently 
and um and other places. Well, so that's one thing I was wondering. So one thing is like discernment of the factual situation. Right, which is somebody who understands the context will know that's commentary, that's satire. Somebody who doesn't might just make a mistake. But then another thing is that the rules can just differ, right? So like in Germany, at least as I understand it, like you can't do Nazi imagery. Like it doesn't matter why, right? Like I could tell the German court, no, 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 this is commentary. And they say, no, I don't care, right? It's a, it's not a factual question. It's like a, a different aspect of the German legal process. 100%. Yeah. And that, so we're not, and we're not talking about that. Like we're talking, right. ta- so like within Germany, like Facebook geoblocks things, that's fine. But doing this at scale is very, very, very hard. If you, if this person had 250,000 followers on her Facebook page and I still had never heard of her and had no idea what she was doing and didn't know whether it was satire or real hate speech, it would take me a couple of minutes to figure that all out and and do it like how there are a million things flagged on the platform every day how do you possibly start doing that and what you start doing is you just really start taking down everything especially Mm -hmm. as the pr heats up you it becomes much more of a liability for you as a company to like have let that one shark get through the net than to have caught 99 dolphins Mm -hmm. right so they'll catch all the dolphins they'll take they'll have tons of false positives they'll take down a lot of good speech or a lot of like useful speech when one person can be using a Nazi to actually like incite violence. But that trade-off is just like, well, if we're going to do the trolley problem on this, we're going to run over the 99 jokes about Nazis. So let's take a break. And and then I kind of want to press on that a little bit. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. So if I think about law, right? Like constitutional law. I would say that like catching 99 dolphins is is bad, right? Like I like the First Amendment. I like America's strong in a comparative context, free speech protections. Uh, you can say and do a lot of stuff in the United States. And that's been our tradition for a long time. And I, and I think it's a good tradition. At the same time, if you go back to 20th century United States, if you look at broadcast television, right, it was very deliberately bland. It's not that free speech was sharply curtailed in America, but like if you wanted really edgy satire, like you would probably need to not be watching CBS, right? Like a 
concatenation of legal issues, political ones, whatever it was. Like, they really, like, they were catching the dolphins on network television. Um, If you wanted out there political opinions, if you wanted... um, like sexy stuff, if you wanted edgy violence, like you had to go someplace other than broadcast network television. And uh, something Noah Smith has has said a lot and that he kind of convinced me of is that that's not a terrible model specifically for giant internet companies. Like I wouldn't want the whole world to be like that. But like what what's wrong with Facebook being like kind of bland and like mostly just like stuff about your kid's birthday or like yay softball team. I mean, that might be the, that might be where we end up coming out on this. I've been thinking more about that model myself recently, but the hindsight of looking back on like how cable developed is that there are like large amounts of speech that were suppressed or moved into other time like time restrictions and everything else this was litigated. Like the, those are huge, huge like communications issues. But the thing about it is that it was done slowly over time. And it took us a while to understand that that's how we wanted to deal with this. And I will say that like, as you kind of point out, and I think the analogy is actually really good. If you wanted really witty satire, you didn't go to cable TV. You went to some like basement bar in the West village. But what I'm trying to basically point out is that I think that there are parts of that that are are less egalitarian than we think. One of the best parts about the internet is that it has this ability to broadcast everywhere and give us access to everything. This access to knowledge and this ability to also speak is like one of the best parts of the internet. And so like you do want to preserve a certain level of kind of, uh, maybe we want to eventually kind of like make it so that we have some type of bland Disney-esque version of Facebook. And like, Twitter is, you know, our news or like for like, you know, our PG-13 version (laughs) of like, right? Like, you know, and like we kind of go up the scale. But like that type of understanding is, I think, just something we're getting to. And it's still not clear who would make those rules, who would do that. Like the FCC did that. And like, here's the other thing. As we've just finished discussing, the Internet is completely global. Whose rules do we end up instituting? the most free speech allowing would be the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I I just sort of always try to push people to distinguish between like Facebook and like, quote unquote, the Internet. And in part, that's like, I I mean, I'm talking my own book here, but because like I've got this this niche podcast that we're on, I do my sub stack. But like, it seems to me that it's acceptable to say that like one giant company should err on the side of caution while also saying that like we don't want that to be the final frontier of the whole kind of universe but actually here we should we should talk about a a nuance with the board that i did not understand until i read your piece which is that they can am i getting this right they can overrule a decision to take something down but they can't require that something be taken down that like the ordinary mods had put up it's it's like it's 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 a one-way ratchet yep so this is supposedly going to start changing by the middle of 2021 but right now the only thing that's in the purview of the board are takedowns so that predisposes it to be pro-speech philic right like they're basically only hearing cases in which something like 
you know, they're hearing sympathetic cases from users who are like, we meant X and we got censored. And like their question is like, well, do we put it back up or do we take it or do we leave it down? They're not hearing cases of this thing was horribly harmful and Facebook let it stay up. Those are going to be coming um, shortly. That was a big part of kind of figuring out the jurisdiction of the board. But that is coming in 2021. And I think it'll make a huge difference. I also just think that it's going to increase the role the board is playing in a a major, major way. I just think it's going to start having much more to say about a lot of different types of issues. Yeah, because that's like a tough I don't want to say tough. It's a big change in role because it's like right now you have a distinguished panel of experts and basically their only job is to like ride to the rescue in in something like this this napalm girl situation, right? Where it's like, okay, the ordinary, like the contract takedown people like didn't get it. And so now this smart group, this, you know, Republican law professor and former prime minister of Denmark, they're going to lift us all up and we'll all say, good for you, you know, high-minded Facebook board. It's so much more contentious when you have that group of people trying to say, okay, here's like an ethnic conflict that nobody's heard about that happens in a country that you don't care about that much. But we are trying to say that like, Facebook content is doing real harm here and we need to get rid of it. I mean, that that's like, I mean, it's important, but like that, that's, that's the tough stuff. It seems to me. You're, I mean, you're hitting on it. Exactly. So this leads to like your FCC point, like they're going to be asked to be the censors and they're going to be asked to be the undoing of the censors. Like, and so it is a, you're completely right. It is a very hard, it's not the usual kind of way that cases present themselves in, in freedom of expression, like instances. And so that's, I think that this is, it's going to be a very strange posture to be coming from. Um, And then you kind of layer on top of it that it's all presented in some way as like, being pro or anti Facebook, which is not as much as what they care about. I don't think as much as they care about like, and I'm speaking kind of just in my talking to members of the board that they, as much as they care about kind of really protecting various types of freedom of expression in the long run, and then not trying to run roughshod over people's safety uh, in the long run as well. Right. So like they're, they're dealing with issues now about like vaccines, right? Where it's not like a physical threat kind of thing, right? Like you couldn't say that like anti-vaccination content, it's not the equivalent of like incitement or fighting words or something like that. It's more a question of, you know, is this like platform like pro-social? Right. In a, in a way that, I mean, again, I think would be commonplace to us for like, television, right? That like CNN should have guests who have a variety of viewpoints. But if CNN was routinely having somebody on there who was like lying about coronavirus vaccines, like people would yell at the executives. I mean, like, like, why, like, why are you doing this? Like, that's not what news is for, right? You're, you're not supposed to be misinforming people. I, I always feel like because Facebook is not founded or run by people who, like, they're not, journalists, right? They're, they're the most important media company in the world, but like it's an engineering company. And so they they don't think about this the way I would. It enables users to post their own content. This is a key difference between like, I really just want to get back to that really like their product is allowing users to speak. Right. And that is literally their main product. It's always been their product. And but the implications for that are obviously just massive. And CNN, that is not the product of CNN. 
there are any journalist organization that is not like to enable people to speak to each other. No, CNN wants to bring you what's important. There's gatekeeping functions, there's whatever, but that is inherently the, the opposite of what Facebook like has ever promised to bring you. And I think that there's something super interesting there because when they were looking at the COVID, uh, when the oversight board uh, decided to put back up um, a statement against the French ministry that had decided that they were going to not allow hydrocloxychloroquine over the counter. And someone had gone on a, on a Facebook group and written this post. And the difference between having that post up and it being an, uh, like some quack expert right? Like saying something on CNN is that, yes, now you can maybe clip something out of CNN and take it and disambiguate it and spread it all over the internet. But you can certainly do that with a Facebook post. And it quickly and like things get copied and pasted and spread. And so there's really, I just have to really like understanding the, like the actual spread of content and understanding how organic content becomes viral and how that all happens is going to be really key to like figuring out how to build in frictions that either replace gatekeepers like CNN or something else, if that's what we decide we want Facebook to do, or replace the FCC or replace just like, you know, parents. Um, And so I think until then, it's still going to be a free for all for a little bit. And, and this is where, I mean, you said that, you know, th- this board, it's, it's pretty distinguished, but it's not super technical. And it's important because I think so much of what makes Facebook powerful, obviously, is the technology, not just like literally it's a website that you can go, but that like things, things go viral, quote unquote, on Facebook. And how exactly that works is really important to understanding the implications of Facebook content uh, for the universe, because it means contexts can shift really rapidly. It means that incentives can be skewed. Like to me, one of the biggest issues is that uh, if a story is true, lots of different outlets are able to write it because it's based on factual information. And that puts you at a competitive disadvantage vis-a-vis somebody who's making things up. Because if I make things up, I can be much more unique, right? And I'm much more likely to go viral with a fake story than with a true one. And as a person who, at least in my in my former life, uh, at one point at Vox, a big part of my job was like trying to get things to go viral on Facebook, right? And it's harder the more you're hewing to like a responsible, accurate recounting of events, not because Mark Zuckerberg hates the truth or even because the audience hates the truth, but it's like everybody knows that Joe Biden won the election. Like every outlet has that. My made up story about how Donald Trump won the election is like that that has so much more pop and potential because there's a lot of Republicans in America and they like that idea. Yeah, but like, I mean, I don't want to like, I don't want to be like everything old is new again. But like, Matt, you're telling me this story. And I'm thinking about like the when there were like six competing newspapers at the turn of the century. Yeah. And like in New York City, and they would just like, go nuts with the headlines. The headlines would be just so salacious. And it was just and famously like you, you know, you take the pictures and I'll make the war. Like, type uh-huh. of, I mean, like that, right? And again, I do not want to equate like everything that's happening with fake news now is like back to then. But I do want to point out that there is, there are shadows of this at a different scale that have happened before and can be illustrative. I'm just not a huge fan of just moral panic and just like complete, oh my God, this is just all so bad. This is 
I'm just kind of like, let's slowly and methodically work through everything that could possibly analogize. <laughs> I'll see you in three years. No, I mean, I, I think the yellow journalism analogy is great, though, because it shows the extent to which this is baked into the fundamentals, right? That we yes. got a, we got accustomed to it's a very first principles problem. A, a, it's a, not, a low yeah. competition news environment, yes. right? The problem with a competitive news environment is that like what we think of as responsible journalism is a is a franchise dynamic right it's like if there's only one newspaper in town and you're just trying to say look like everybody should subscribe to my newspaper and you can like scan it on a daily basis and read the stories or not like that incentivizes a certain kind of output and we got six paper boys on the corner all screaming at you buy my paper buy my paper that's a very different set of incentives and Facebook is running like the world's most competitive news rack in the universe. I increasingly love the news rack example there. I mean, there, I, I, there's different parts of every part of Facebook and, and social media that you can analogize to different things. But I think with the Australia events that happened recently in the media ban and how you can think of like how they were levying taxes you have to imagine that Facebook is like the news rack. It's like the corner store selling your magazines. And the way that you're solving the magazines going out of business is by taxing the news rack. Like you're going to like, right? That doesn't make sense. It's not a very thoughtful structure to to a law. And like, I kind of feel like if any, like, I, I just kind of feel like that we have such bad laws that are being developed right now in every country that I that I know of that like, it's like the reason I kind of do this work, but it's also just so disappointing. And hopefully, though, it like they slowly push us to a better understanding. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with that in, in that that Australian context in particular is like, I, I think, not understanding what it is you're doing. I, but the flip side of the news rack thing, right, is like if somebody said, oh, I don't like this newspaper, right? Like it's full of bullshit constantly um and in particular right something that 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 i think i've heard from facebook is like one of the people was like well it's no surprise that like right-wing content overperforms here because it's more you know like emotional blah 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 and that's just human nature um which like might be true right but it's also removes agency right like if you own a newsstand like it's up to you like if you think a given newspaper is really irresponsible and is damaging the world but also you make more money money if you keep selling it like that's just a choice you have made that the money you are making is more important to you than the impact of your product on the universe and it it seems to me that there's a lot of efforts to just sort of like distance the people making the money and doing the work from the outputs and and i hope that part of the board process is coming to just like own the fact that whatever the decision is like it is up to them and they they can make the machine work however they want it to work totally and so like i think that that's such a use yeah and to like to kind of foot stomp like the ideas that could come out of something like using the newspaper and newsstand analogy is that like listen there's always been like pornography that gets sold behind the newsstand. And I think that that's fascinating. Those are interstitials. Those are like warning labels. Those are whatever it is that we're asking. And so we're asking Facebook to kind of do that. And no, we don't think that the Daily Stormer 
has any role being at any newsstand ever. Like, let's like, just be like clear on that. Right. But I think that the, the idea that there are all of these um, proportionality and technical measures that we can start to kind of, to, to fit onto the system. I just don't, I, I just, this has been happening for such a short period of time, Matt. I just want to like point that out. I started doing this research in my PhD in 2015 and all of the rules for Facebook and how they governed the site were completely opaque. They had not shared them with anyone. They were not posted until 2018. And so this is like literally all happened in three years time. It's just crazy how much the world has gone from knowing nothing about these processes to knowing that they exist and then demanding change and then trying to figure out what they want that change to be. And I just think that that's, you know, essentially what we're going to be doing for the next 10 years, at least, if not longer. No, I mean, that's a great point, right? I mean, this is a very new universe and we're all sort of impatient with it. Uh, but, yeah, we all seem to forget everything that happened like two weeks ago. So. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it's going to take time. Transition is, is difficult. Uh, this is obviously like a vast subject, but is there any like one thing you would like to leave us with or, or point we didn't get to that, that you think um, people really need to know here? Yeah, I guess that I would say that I'm, I'm not against kind of regulation in any of these areas. I just think that people's calls to regulation or to break up tech companies or whatever else might be fine and might actually be useful. But I guess just to like interrogate your priors about calling for regulation necessarily, that sometimes that there are some really negative consequences of pushing government and something so powerful as these platforms together in any type of capacity and giving government power over these platforms is maybe we'll have more deleterious consequences uh, in the long run than we think. Uh, and I would say that like, instead thinking about bigger picture and that we're in kind of a new world that's exploding kind of the public private distinction in speech and the transnational distinction in speech is maybe something to think about and what we want that to look like. So just, you know, encouraging people to, to think outside the box on this stuff. All right, fantastic. Thank you so much, Kate Klonick, St. John's University, uh, the articles in The New Yorker, other articles uh, in Harvard Law Review. Um, thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, Eric Janakis, and the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply.